I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I always tell people everything I learned about economic profit, cash flow, how you treat people really came from those early days in the motel. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we'll get to know Tarang Amin, chairman and CEO of Elf Cosmetics, one of the fastest growing beauty brands in the U.S. with national distribution at Target, Walmart, CVS, and Old Navy, just to name a few small retailers. Elf caters to young, diverse makeup enthusiasts with innovative and affordable cosmetics. But this isn't Tarang's first go-around leading a team. And over the years, Tarang learned what not to do just by observing. You know, what I realized is how much I paid attention to leaders and how they projected. And it was two extremes that I never liked. The, I call it the Teflon thing where you never knew what someone was thinking. And, or the other ones that were very sometimes emotional and uh, negative and started cursing and, and, you know, expressed all the frustration in, in the world. Find out how a storied career running international teams at legacy brands like Procter & Gamble and Clorox gave Terang his business superstar status, how he fell into his role at Elf Cosmetics, and how Elf's affordable model gave it an undeniable edge over the competition. Unfinished Biz starts now. Right now. Hey, Wayne. I can't wait for people to actually hear about Terang's incredible history and what he was doing as a kid, kind of growing up in all these different places, and then, you know, what he was doing as a teenager. Not many of us were spending all of our time behind a counter in a motel. No, and I think what the audience will hear is how he transitioned that into running successful teams at Clorox, Procter & Gamble, really big industry, big teams, Mm -hmm. and it really helped crystallize what he knows about brands, and then pulling that all together into an entrepreneurial journey at Elf. We recently caught up with Terang at Elf's headquarters in Oakland, California. My entrepreneurial journey started when I was 14 years old. Now, as a little bit of background, Indian ethnicity, both of my parents were born and raised in India. I actually was born in East Africa. My dad used to work in Kenya, so I was born in Nairobi. Wow. Spent part of my childhood in Kenya and Uganda. When Idi Amin came to power and kicked all the Asians out, we were part of the <laughs> exodus that came and settled in the States. And like many immigrants, we rose as entrepreneurs. So when I was 14 years old, we sold our house and basically took every penny we had, and we bought a small motel on Route 1 in Alexandria, Virginia. Moved right into the manager's apartment. Probably wasn't that much bigger than my office is now. <laughs> and uh, our business model as a family is we'd find these distressed properties We'd fix them up. We're good operators. We use the cash flow to kind of keep going from there. Always home? All, mo- all motels or all, all homes uh, as well? No, all motels. Okay. And um, we're, our ethnic group from India is uh, Gujaratis. There's quite a few Gujaratis in the motel business. And, yep. um, and so we were one of them. And basically, you know, I found myself – the motels rarely show up in any of my corporate bios. But the reason why <laughs> – I always tell the motel story is really twofold. One is – um, I found myself after grad school at Procter & Gamble, and you couldn't imagine a more different environment than P&G versus a small family hospitality business. And while P&G was a great training ground, I always tell people everything I learned about economic profit, cash flow, how you treat people, really came from those early days in the motel. 
Um, I remember, you know, f- later on in the journey as we started doing acquisitions at my last company, people would ask me, you know, how comfortable are you with leverage? And I said, well, <laughs> let me explain it this way. When you're 14 years old and the interest rate is like 19.8% and you know everything your family has is in this one property, uh, you get very good at understanding <laughs> kind of cash flow and, and leverage and what that takes. And those are really, really important lessons yeah. lessons and you know I, I always tell people even at png i was able to take a lot of those entrepreneurial lessons as a small family hospitality business and apply them to much larger scaled businesses uh, i started in the brand side so what was your uh, sort of talk us through what, what was sort of the family dynamic there and, and in terms of just what was your role uh, when you guys were actually sort of buying into these motels. Sure. Yeah. So my, you know, my role really when I was, and it evolved over time, but when I was 14, really was helping my dad any way yeah. I could. So yeah. what we did is, as many entrepreneurs do, is you tried to create, keep one area that was safe while you didn't. So my mom was an accountant. She kept her job mm-hmm. and she worked. So we had at least that <laughs> right. stream coming in if, if this didn't work. Right. And then my dad and I would work together. So, I mean, I remember, um, you know, every day kind of after school through the weekends, I don't think I went to a football game till, you know, well into my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we, you know, we did everything. We, and we basically, um, you know, our model was we found these properties that they were motels, so um, relatively cheap and inexpensive mm-hmm. in terms of staying there. And so, franchised you know, or not franchised? Not franchised. They're independent. And you know, in examples, we used to do everything kind of by ourselves. So, if there's a major hotel in the DC area that was going to renovate, we would get a truck, take a couple of people over during the auction, and figure out what we'd want to buy, and that's how we decorated our rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and, you know, really, I mean, it really was roll up your sleeves and any job. I mean, if, you know, if, if my head ever got too big for myself and the maids didn't show up on Saturday, guess who was making the rooms? Right. Um, and so that was a really important experience because even when I went to much larger businesses, things like the importance of cash flow, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of big companies, people often don't pay attention to that. And as an entrepreneur, I mean, that was absolutely the lifeblood at which you operated, being able to take I, you know, I'd call it a little bit more of that scrappy approach mm-hmm. and, you know, what can we do and, and how we do it. So it was quite formative. And, you know, many years later, while the majority of my career has been in large consumer packaged goods companies, you know, I found myself about eight years ago making the switch to these private equity backed mid-market growth companies. Mm-hmm. And while the industries are different and this, you know, scales different. I find many of the same characteristics in these businesses as our original entrepreneurial business. That right. Every single person here can make a meaningful difference to our results, uh, that you have real ownership in what you do, the ability to get to know everyone and mm-hmm. how quickly you can make decisions and work. I mean, I think those themes that often start in much smaller businesses, I think, are equally relevant and actually even more important in much larger and scaled businesses. When you graduated from college, what, what drove you to join a, a larger organization Yeah, it was rather really- than continue that? direct entrepreneurial pursuit. Sure. So when I was, uh, so we built up the business and you asked about my role. So yeah. originally it was just helping my dad and then it was actually sourcing and, and buying uh, properties. Oh, wow. uh, I ended up selling our motel business in my mid-20s. Uh, my dad wanted to do 
nonprofit work and wanted to start a temple in, in Pennsylvania. And so he didn't really have interest in the motel business as much as some of the philanthropic work that he wanted to do. So I sold the motel business, and my parents have lived off of that ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really my path, I think, you know, from college I was – um, in international development major. I worked at the Agency for International Development for a couple of years, went to business school, um, and really my name showed up on a interview list for Procter & Gamble, and it was a complete accident. I, mean, I didn't even know what P&G did. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I think the, the people specializing in marketing were pretty appalled. But I remember one of the interview questions at, at P&G was, um, you know, and I, I didn't know really what marketing was that first year. Uh, was you know, well, how how did you how did you price rooms in your motel? And That's I said, I said, huh? I said, well, if you walked in one of my hotels, I'd look you up and down and figure out what you could pay, and I'd charge you that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the person was appalled. They were like, wait, that's that's price discrimination. Right. I, it's, no, it's not. I go, I guarantee your plane ticket coming down to Durham was more expensive right. than right. tourists next totally, year. Totally, yeah. And so we did that, and, and the person said, well, what if you what if you got the price wrong? Yeah. And I said, well, I saw thousands of customers, and that's one of the other things I think you learn as an entrepreneur is that direct interaction mm-hmm. with the people that you serve. And so I said I knew my customers extremely well, so I rarely ever misquoted or mispriced. But I said, but if I did, and let's say I said, you know, it's 30 30 bucks and you know you weren't you weren't biting on that. Right. I would say, "Oh, of course, that's I was special room, today. That's the room with a king-size bed if you don't mind right. a king-size bed." <laughs> right. And you know, the fact that we source from big hotels None of our rooms were the standardized or the same. So right. we always – and, you know, so all these little concepts that I later learned on, you know, pricing, segmentation, <laughs> differentiation of the rooms that we just did naturally because there was this whole aspect of, you know, well, well you know, hey, if you don't mind for $3 more, I got a room that has a really big jacuzzi cup tub. Would you rather have that? You know, and so you learn these things as we kind of went on and didn't really know what they were. But yeah. over over time, you're like, oh, okay, I got – that we were doing a lot of things that later, more formally, you kind of learn. But I'd say the you know PNG was a brand management internship. I went there. I loved um, loved the whole concept of being able to you know really help run a brand mm-hmm. and build a brand and learn everything it takes to do that. And I thought you know I just thought it was going to be a terrific experience. And um, you know, but went there like many people do. I went there with the intention I'd stay for a couple of years and then move on to go back to D.C. where I grew up and um, and found myself there 11 years, so much <laughs> longer than I thought. And, well, and I think it's a place where I, I feel like many people, it, you know, that it's a great place to learn. It's a, it's you get a great experience, especially on the brand side of things. And so, one question that I have is kind of going into it. It sounded like you went in and you really sort of sponged up all this information but was was there anything that you remember being like super surprising something that surprised you that you didn't expect to learn there gosh i learned so much there i really did i mean i'd I'd say you know i was i was fortunate that um and i did something very unusual they tended to move brand people around quite quite Mm -hmm. often and i ended up being on one business for eight years so i was part of the team that relaunched pantene in the early 90s uh, at the time, it was a $50 million hair care brand in the mm-hmm. U.S. and Western Europe. And about eight years later, when I left, it was about a $2 billion market leader in that category. So I learned a ton. And I think probably one of the, one of the best lessons I learned early on is 
I always thought it was, um, while it gave you lots of great experiences, moving people around too much um, really created the wrong incentive system, that your job was to try to create a pop and then move on to the next thing, et cetera. When you're in a business eight years, four years into it, you can no longer blame the last brand manager in terms of the decisions (laughs) you have. And so I think one of the things I really learned was the importance of continuity and seeing things through and – you know, as great as Pantene was, I mean, you know, getting to $2 billion in sales, we had three or four walls we hit. And, you know, I'd say the ability to kind of constantly reinvent and figure out what do you got to, what do you got to go do to get to that next level, mm-hmm. I think uh, was one. And then I think the other one for me, which was really important kind of early in my career is, um, uh, it's probably one of the low points of my career, but one of the more important ones. I was uh, brought in to do a turnaround on the Bounty paper towel business. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a very large business in North America, um, had gotten through some struggles. I had had the success on Pantene, so mm-hmm. was was put on Bounty. And, you know, it was just a really tough turnaround that we had to basically re-engineer everything to mm-hmm. try to get it back to its roots. And it was at a time when P&G went through a leadership transition, the Dirk Yarger had left, A.G. Laffley had been brought in, you know, it was the mighty have fallen kind mm-hmm. of that, that period. And um, What year was that? It was, uh, now I'm trying to remember, it was probably around the late 90s, okay. 90, 98, 99, yeah. around that time. And they weren't putting A.G. up for any interviews, and I'd done a lot of media things. So Business Week was going to do an article on, on P&G, and they said, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll let you talk to Tarang and, about the bounty business. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember the cover, I uh, can't completely remember, but it, it basically was along the lines of if you want to know where the inside cover was, you know, if you want to know what's wrong with Procter & Gamble, you have to look no further than the bounty business. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and it was one of these articles. Oh, congratulations, Trey. Yeah. You get to speak to that. <laughs> I know. I totally. And, you know, and I should stop talking about it because it, it keeps rising in my probably Google search <laughs> history. But, um, That's funny. But I remember reading it. You know, it was, it was all these points they were made, and, you know, it would be like this no quipped them in or, you know, that's not true. That's, yeah. <laughs> and so I read this and, you know, instant reaction as most people do when you have a large public kind of, um, embarrassment is, um, you know, first reaction is very defensive of everything that they had gotten wrong. You know, you really, I was, you know, I just felt terrible. So I remember going up to AG Laughley's office and saying, Hey, AG, I'm, I'm really sorry about that article. It didn't turn out the way I, you know, I wanted it to, um, uh, really, really apologize. And, and he looked at me and says, trying, don't worry about it. Nobody reads Business Week. Um, <laughs> he, goes, he goes, you're doing the right thing. Stay focused on your plan mm-hmm. and keep keep driving where you're going. Well, I drive home that day and right along the fence between my yard and one of my neighbors, um, one of my neighbors, Tom, he looks at me and he's waiting there at the fence as I'm driving up uh, the driveway. And he looks at me and goes, trying. Man, that was a bad article. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I sat there thinking, oh, my God, wait a minute. People do read business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like you had me and, for like know, half a day. And, yeah. and, right. and I, w- I went, you know, the normal reaction, like I want to write a letter to the editor, tell them everything they got wrong, et cetera. Then I thought about it, and I think probably the biggest thing that occurred to me is if I was feeling that bad, we had probably about 2,000 people on Bounty throughout the entire organization. Yeah. Yeah. So I wrote a note to our, my organization that night. They basically said it was the Bounty Business Week article. And I said, hey, look, my first reaction was they got a lot of things wrong, and I was really disappointed given how hard everyone's been working on this. But then as I step back, I go, you know, some of the things they had were right and talked to the transformation we're doing. You know, we did let our value 
equation get out of whack. We made people forget that we were selling bounty, not just paper towels. Mm-hmm. Um, went through basically the thesis that we were on in terms oh, wow. of trying to turn this business around. And basically sent it to everyone. And then I think, you know, somebody had sent it to AG. He actually sent it throughout the company. And it was one of those moments of, and I think probably back to not so much surprise, but I think one of the best times for me is not when things are good, but when you really are in that ditch and trying to figure out, like, you know, just that night I want to just go home and, you know, kind of cuddle up and (laughs) and hide under under the covers. What inspired you to do that? Because I do think that that's not a standard reaction. I think that there's a, I think most people, there'd be a, a, a good deal of, you know, sulking a little bit you know like you're but but you you really um you really took a totally different path there yeah well i you know what i realized is how much i paid attention to leaders and how they projected when and whether it was two extremes that i never liked the i call it the teflon thing where you never knew what someone was thinking and they they almost this kind of projected this everything's always right when everybody around you knew it wasn't mm-hmm. or the other ones that were very sometimes emotional and uh, negative and started cursing and and right. you know expressed all the frustration in, in the world and so i think being able to actually observe both those behaviors and say okay what kind of leader do i want to be and you know constantly putting myself and i, I go all the way back to the motels you know well, the way we incented our managers we didn't pay them that much was we said you know what do they want out of life. And what we realized is many of them wanted a better life for themselves and their mm-hmm. families. And so we created a system where you, you could, based on your results in the motel, we would help fund uh, your own property and we'd help uh, back them for, for that. So yeah. it was a tremendous incentive for someone coming over where one, they weren't making that much, but right. you could actually graduate into having your Proliferate own property. Proliferate more and, entrepreneurship. E- exactly. And so this constant ability of kind of putting yourself in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. and kind of saying, gosh, if I was feeling that rotten, what about somebody who'd been on the team or may not be right. as close to everything that we're doing? Right. And get into the process of really communicating, you know, what are we thinking? How am I feeling? And and then always looking it back towards, you know, what is the strategy and what are we trying to do and bringing it back to that. And so, I, you know, be honest with you, I've, I've done that pretty much ever since. I, every business I have, I try to distill down the business strategy onto one page. Right. It's usually a pretty visual page, and I'll use that with our key customers, investors, employees, suppliers, anyone we're working with, so everyone's on the same page of this is what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And then you can always ground people back to that. On If this is what we're trying to do, let's honestly talk about our progress. Where, where are we good? Where are we not good? And what I find is it creates not only great alignment, but more importantly, the ability for everyone to uh, contribute and talk about kind of their role within it and what's working, what's not, and kind of creating that that culture where people are free to share. That makes a lot of sense because I think putting yourself in their shoes, I'm sure they were driving up home as well, and they had their neighbors being like, tough day at work today, right? And, and you know, they were living through probably somewhat of a similar experience that you were living through too. So yeah. the fact that someone actually even responded and addressed it. Yeah. And know. it was also powerful. We we bring it up every year. Mm-hmm. So I was on that business another three years. And mm-hmm. every year we'd bring back the article and we basically oh, say, wow. let's talk about where our progress is. And sure enough, at the end of that three-year period, I think we had grown net sales over $300 million after tax profits, $100 million, um, So Bounty was share. back. 
market share leadership to, I mean, I think we got it to 45 share by, by that time. And so, of course, Business Week didn't do another article. I was going to yeah. say, did you, go, did you go find <laughs> that guy again? That's right. <laughs> like, would you like uh, yeah, to write a different I, article now? I try. I think we moved past that by then. Yeah. That's so great. was there something at, at a given point that frustrated you about being part of a large organization like P&G that led to you wanting to do something different? Yeah, no, I'd seen, you know, I'd say I was very happy at P&G. I mean, I thought, um, you know, I, I love the brands. I love the people. Uh, obviously, it was a key part of my kind of formation as a leader. Um, so the first, I mean, I think any big company and, you know, I was then an exec at Clorox, but my move from P&G to Clorox was not because of any dissatisfaction at P&G. It was more a family, a personal reason. We'd found ourselves as much as we loved Cincinnati there about 11 years. And you know, we had we, were, we had our kids uh, really right after we got married. And so we wanted to say, like, we wanted to make sure that they um, next in the P&G journey was going international, which would have been fine. But yeah. Pretty international ourselves, and so <laughs> right. bigger desire for us um, and some of the friends I saw who had gone overseas. The kids kind of came back with a sense of privilege because they went to private sc- the American mm-hmm. schools and in these different countries. And my next role there was going to be in Geneva, and we, um, having grown up with not that many means, and really important for us to send our kids to public school, um, it started creating this question for my wife and I of where did we want to have them finish right. you mm-hmm. know, finish school and you know P&G was great they said look if you don't want to go you can certainly stay right. uh, here but I think by that we started looking and wanted to come to the Bay Area mainly we used to vacation out here we couldn't believe people lived out here and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so it was really a personal choice of you know wanting to have our kids kind of finish school in a more cosmopolitan kind of international area mm-hmm. And, um, and what somehow, year was that when you moved out here? It was um, that was two thousand and two. Okay, and um, and somehow Clorox found out, and you know I, I hadn't even left Cincinnati. I think uh, Craig Selvin, who's the chairman, flew through, interviewed me, gave me um, the offer, and uh, I remember, you know, in hindsight. I mean, I love my time at Clorox, but, you know, I, I probably should have looked a little bit more. That was a time where, you know, Apple was just getting going. <laughs> so just career-wise, it's like, yeah, I would say, you know, the other thing is don't That's be funny. as lazy as I was. And, <laughs> You're and like, just take hey, it. But it just seems. There's this job. It looks great. <laughs> and I think, you know. To, we don't want to go to Geneva. Yeah. That's right. And to your question, actually, the. Um, as much as I like P&G, I, I like Clorox even even more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, and part of the reason why is. It wasn't as big as PNG. It was, you know, eight billion instead of six billion, or six, five billion instead of, you know, PNG. I think eventually it was eighty billion, and mm-hmm. and it felt. I remember I was brought in initially in a marketing role, VP of marketing over their laundry and home care business, and I you know, I love looking at. You know, one of the ways I learn is looking at histories of brands. And I'd seen kind of I response part of my responsibility was anything that had the Clorox mark on it. And I went back, and that business was struggling at the time, and, and looked back at history and said, you know, if most people, when they think of Clorox, they think of bleach, and you think of bleach, you think of either whitening or maybe even hardcore, maybe it's toxic. Maybe you know, Everyone's right. had the bleach stain on their clothes. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I went back, and I looked, and I said, oh, my gosh, this is such an incredible brand. It was created here in the Bay Area 100 years ago. Uh, really is a germicide and disinfectant. If you think of large kind of urban areas at the time and the public health issues, even to this day, there's no no better, broader spectrum, more economical disinfectant than uh, sodium hypochlorite. So I had this idea of why don't we transform this from hardcore cleaning 
to this is a health and wellness business. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to the CEO at the time and saying, hey, I'm going to change kind of the position of Clorox and have this vision of building up an antimicrobial technology platform behind it. And we had to do a bunch of things on the regulatory side, et cetera. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, that looks like it makes sense. And I remember I got a call from a P&G friend soon after that. And he goes, how's it going? How, how do you like it there? And I'm like, these guys are crazy. They're letting me take a 100-year-old business and just basically <laughs> change it based on what I think is. And sure enough, we did this transformation where we were able to double the size of the Clarks franchise in about four years, really through this focus on health and wellness, a lot of innovation on things like disinfecting wipes and a lot of new products. So when um, Greenworks came out? And Greenworks was during that time uh, okay. under under my group. Somebody else developed Greenworks, but right. they'd actually originally wanted to do it as a standalone brand, and, and they hated me for saying, all right, we'll put in a leg where it has a Clorox mark on it mm-hmm. as well. And uh, sure enough, it scored about 30 points higher just given the biggest issue in a lot of the green right. cleaners was they're either too Efficacy. expensive or people didn't think they worked. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, that was launched during that time um, as well. And so I would say, you know, that whole experience, uh, even though Clorox is also pretty big, mm-hmm. it wasn't quite as big as P&G. Right. You're wor- you're, loved, you're, you're working your way down. That's and right. I love the fact that, you know, you could move faster. But probably the biggest thing there was uh, my second half of my career at Clorox, I ran – I was a general manager over three of our divisions, the litter, food, and charcoal divisions. And uh, the brands there would be um, Kingsford in the right. charcoal side, Hidden mm-hmm. Valley, Ranch Dressing. And it's it's all the stuff a lot of people don't even know Clorox makes, but mm-hmm. it accounts for the vast majority of the company's profits. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, in the process, because those businesses are so different, they had their own supply chain, their own distribution system. Um, they're fairly autonomous from the rest of Clorox. Um, and I ended up just loving that. I loved running them and kind of really had the desire of kind of let's, I want to go run something different and Mm -hmm. I want it to be maybe not quite as much as my family motel kind of business, but more entrepreneurial in nature. And, um, that's when I, I I was recruited to be the CEO of Shift Nutrition. Mm-hmm. It was uh, what it was, year was that? That was in um, two thousand ten, okay. and or around there, I think. Uh, yeah, two thousand ten, and you know, TPG uh, had uh, the large private equity company in San mm-hmm. Francisco had taken mm-hmm. a stake in Shift, and um, recruited me in as the CEO. And I remember I was I was a terrible candidate for that because <laughs> I. Uh, I basically, I think uh, Bill McGlashan runs a fund, had in the spec that he wanted, you know, a sitting, it was, it was a public company, so he wanted a sitting public company CEO, mm-hmm. ideally you had healthcare experience and who would work with private equity. And of course, my profile comes across and I think he yelled at the recruiting firm of, well, don't you get about this? <laughs> yeah. You got this big company guy coming in and, you know, this mid-market company, but sure enough, I think... How big of a company was Shift? Shift was a, t- it was a small company. It was probably about $180 million in sales yeah. uh, at mm-hmm. the time or... Um, and it was the same as its enterprise value. I mean, it right. was about 180 million, and you know, came in and we connected on. I think back to the entrepreneurial background. Mm-hmm. I think there's enough in my background where you could see, even yeah. though I've been in big, big places, mm-hmm. my roots were very much different. And um, and then I think we connected on the thesis of when I looked at the nutritional supplement space, it's a great big category, but we didn't really see that many brands that I knew uh, that weren't landlocked. If you think of the kind of multivitamins, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we could really bring real technology there. So came in, we, you know, built up the team, um, put in a new strategy where instead of going across 
you know, I think at the time we were selling 400 or 500 different types of vitamin and mineral supplements. And uh, we said, no, let's really focus on creating leading brands and the conditions that matter most to consumers. So we already had a good, pretty good joint business uh, with a brand called Move Free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a small emerging brand called Mega Red mm-hmm. that we built into the market leader in heart health. Um, and then we made some acquisitions. We acquired a probiotic technology that we're really excited about and, and created a brand called Digestive Advantage in the probiotic space. We bought uh, Airborne in the immune mm-hmm. support space. And I think in the course of about two years, we grew the enterprise value from about $180 million to a billion and a half, oh, wow. selling to Rocket Bank Keezer. And uh, it was such a fun experience. So how long? A couple, two years? You it said? was about two years, That's yeah. That's great. And so, um, and as, as you guys know, I mean, we did a lot of good things, but you can also sometimes get lucky too. <laughs> and so I think uh, there weren't that many scaled assets in that space with the growth mm-hmm. profile that we had. And, um, and was that based here as well? It was originally, the company originally was based in Salt Lake City. And mm-hmm. so what we did is I, I went, me and much of the core team went back and forth a lot to Salt Lake City. But since we live in the Bay Area and our thesis was building leading brands with real science and building an e-commerce business, we thought a lot of the talent pool here in the Bay Area right. would be better. So we opened up a small office in Emeryville. Got it. And, um, and then, you know, after we sold, I think the team we'd recruited in, we had so much fun. The only problem with Shift was it went too fast. Yeah, it was so. a short <laughs> period. And, and was that team mostly recruited or were they a lot of folks that you'd worked with in the past? A combination. Okay. But a lot of them were recruited. And I mean, some people were, you know, I've worked with for 15 years. Right. Uh, and, so um, Clorox and P&G folks? Clorox or? and P&G. Um, and, you know, that I've, I've known kind of in different capacities. So I brought over my head of ops from kind of my little food charcoal business. We are, um, had a sales is, you know, was the GM over the home care business back when I worked on, mm-hmm. on that and just has a great background. But then a lot of people are GC we recruited in, um, you know, out from the outside. Most people we actually did recruit in from gotcha. other environments. Got it. Um, but usually the profile we pick is people who come from, you know, have a successful track record, usually in, you know, academy kind of blue chip companies, but share that same characteristic of wanting just to move a lot faster and wanting to do things that are more entrepreneurial in nature and with greater ownership. And that's something that, you know, I love about these mid-market growth companies is Mm -hmm. I I feel that there's this great balance between having enough resource where you can hire someone if you want to versus, you know, watch every single penny like we did on the motels. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's still very quite lean and you can move incredibly fast. And I think that's been one of the great things that we've, we've uh, been able to do. So really any, anybody we had on the shift team that we asked to come over, came over to elf when we we bought elf. (laughs) So the exit uh, was 2014 then? The exit uh, roughly, it was probably 20, 2012, 2013, somewhere around. Okay. And, uh, and then I told the team I was going to take a year off because I'd been working since I was 14 and my wife and I would go travel and, and a lot of the core team said, "Wait, well, hey, that sounds like a great idea. We'll do the same. Tell us when you're ready to come back. <laughs> they're, they're, they're probably like, you know what? Where are you guys going? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we traveled. My wife feels completely gypped because we did it about six months. And then I started looking at yeah. other opportunities again. And, you know, really came across um, Elf. You know, I wasn't really even looking at the color cosmetics um, area. I'd, I always thought there were too many brands. There mm-hmm. wasn't enough differentiation. And 
But then saw this company that I just absolutely loved. And it was another, it was a founder, mm-hmm. an entrepreneur, um, created company, uh, two did, founders. And did TBG bring you in to look at the deal with them? They Is did. It? I actually looked at it with another firm uh, at first. And oh, okay. Then, uh, I love the consumer business model. So those not familiar with Elf, I mean, it, yep. you know, the company was founded 15 years ago by father and son entrepreneurs, Alan and Joey Shama. They, Alan Shama had spent his entire career kind of in apparel, um, had seen he was making private label apparel for Walmart and Target and had a, had a really nice business he'd built up, um, but also saw the rise of Zara, H&M, and fast fashion mm-hmm. and thought, wouldn't it be great to apply that to a different category? Right. Meanwhile, Joey was graduating NYU, and so they, they picked beauty because what they saw in beauty was you know a lot of the brands would mark up their products to a very high gross margin, mm-hmm. only to deal it back in celebrity endorsements, right. broad scale advertising, all of all of that take a long time to get their products to market. They thought it was a category that you know was well suited for the model they'd seen in fast fashion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically the thesis in the beginning was um, selling high quality cosmetics at one dollar each mm-hmm. over the internet which right. you know both ideas were kind of crazy like people didn't think you could sell cosmetics over the internet 15 years ago mm-hmm. and you certainly couldn't sell it at a dollar and make any money right. but you know they'd figured out alan had a real knack on kind of the sourcing side joey was great on kind of from an e-commerce standpoint and because everything went into the quality of these products at a dollar frankly there was no money left for anything else mm-hmm. and so classic entrepreneurs as they were all they did is they kept the review thing open on the website. So anybody could leave a review. It was almost the brand grew by word of mouth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is all my secret. I can't believe I'm getting this for a dollar. dollar. Yeah. I'm going to leave a review on. None of the reviews were ever edited. Mm-hmm. Use social media back when it was free. And, right. and really the brand grew through a series of kind of viral kind of waves. And, um, and then Target, um, you know, seen the chatter kind of online brought it in to test. I remember when I did diligence on the on the company, I, I called up um, Christina Hennington who ran Beauty of Target, mm-hmm. and I said, hey, can you tell me about Elf? And she's like, oh, we love Elf. And I said, I never even heard of it. What, what do you love about it? And she said, well, one of my buyers saw a lot of chatter, wanted to bring it in, but was afraid it would trade down the rest of the category. Because right. at that time, the price points had gone to anywhere from a dollar to $3. And and oh, so that's, that's the second time Christina Hinton's got a shout out I know. on our show because yeah. uh, Amy, Amy from Regan. Sk- yeah Amy yeah. Regan from Skin Fix. Oh, so, great! So, yeah, yeah, no, and she's so. terrific, and she, you know, she was she was kind enough to kind of share a couple key things that really got me interested, even mm-hmm. though I, I'd liked kind of Alan and Joey's story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she said not only did it not trade the category down. It brought in a whole new user base, right. these young, diverse kind of makeup enthusiasts who are buying, instead of buying that one maybe CoverGirl foundation, can now buy like five different things across right. the category because of the accessibility. Um, and then she told me a second thing is um, it was the most productive brand they carried. And I said, oh, you mean on units because it's cheap? She right. said, no, actually on a dollar per foot basis, it's right. more productive than anything else. And I said um, – and I knew the only place it was in distribution was Target at the right. time and its own website. So right. could see the potential there. Oh, um, so the time that it was going through this sale process that where you were looking at it, it was really just Target and dire- direct-to-consumer at the time? Mainly, yeah. Okay. That was it. I mean, they had a couple of small customers. Did they go through dollar stores at they all? They didn't. That was okay. actually, you know, you, you know sometimes I think um, 
ask kind of low points on businesses. I think one of the low points for Alan and Joey was their original thesis was they wanted to sell it in the dollar stores. They thought we're going to make dollar cosmetics. Right. The dollar channel back 15 years ago was really rising in right. importance, and they thought this would be perfect. Right. Dollar channel, love it. But like great entrepreneurs, they I think they found, they worked with a consultant, they created the first nine products. Um, they even ordered uh, a couple container loads for, <laughs> okay. of these products. Uh-huh. And then they went to the dollar channel, and the dollar channel basically said, uh, no, we're not, we're not interested in dollar cosmetics, right? And of course, Alan and Joey are looking at each other going like, wait a minute, we got product coming over. Why are you not interested <laughs> yeah. in, in dollar cosmetics? And meanwhile, one of the one of the editors, I think it was at Allure, had gotten one of our $1 eye pencils mm-hmm. and said, I can't believe this is a dollar. I mean, it, it compares to something that's like $15. I'd love to write you up, but you have to be in national distribution. Right. right? And this is where Joey and Alan just came back from basically getting rejected at the dollar channel. Mm-hmm. And um, so Joey asked, like, well, what's national distribution? And she said, well, like, even if you had a website um, or you're selling <laughs> that, that way, right? Yeah. And so the business really, in some respects, was created by accident because right. Joey yeah. took out his visa and I think for $5,000 opened up com at the time. And um, and the rest is history. And so it was a great pivot in terms of, you know, and I, I call it the classic entrepreneur thing of, you know, facing rejection and, and, but still being resourceful enough to figure out what else do we do. And if he hadn't made that choice, I I just don't know where we'd be right now. Um, and then because of that, we, we have this great business model where everything we do, there's a real desire to kind of put our new products on into our direct channels. We now also have about 22 of our own stores Mm -hmm. and that's where we learn what we learn, what's going to work, what people are reacting to. We have, you know, that 14, 15 years of data Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the sales. But before we get there, like how how did you end up getting involved? So with the business, you're you're looking at it with another, another firm. firm, And then I went to a lot of the products were manufactured in China. And when I went there, well, there's no issues on a social compliance or anything else standpoint. I just thought, we really probably needed to change that supply chain to really hone it to be able to scale the business. And so I stepped away thinking that that transformation would be too big to make. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, TPG entered the process and said, hey, uh, we found this great business that you might be interested in. I said, I've already looked at that, but they were, um, I think what part of what gave me confidence is they have a pretty good presence in Shanghai, mm-hmm. where the area near where we're uh, based. So I thought we'd, there'd be some backstop that if anything went wrong in the transformation, I at least had partners that could be helpful, helpful there. Yeah. And so when they won the business, they brought me in as a CEO. We obviously brought in much of the management team that we had at at Schiff that they had good experience with. And um, and then you know we got to work and and really that first year we did transform that supply chain. I was gonna say, what, what were the primary challenges um, that you identified on the way in that you wanted to knock out in that first year? Yeah. So one of them was, I mean, I think you know we um, Elf always had a great value equation. The way we were able to source dollar products was decent quality at this extraordinary value. We wanted to take the quality up even further and really advance our, our, our ability to be able to do that. But the team we had there was very local, and we probably needed to bring in more multinational talent mm-hmm. um, that we could help transform the supply base that we had. I mean, we still – I think one of our great advantages is many of the suppliers we have have been with us and have grown up with us from kind of day one. So while we don't own the assets, we have a lot <clears throat> of control over, right. over them. And so our ability to kind of transform that entire team and kind of really build in kind of the talent. And then like many entrepreneurial companies, you know, they'd gotten to, uh, when we 
bought the company about four years ago. It was about $100 million in sales. Mm-hmm. And in order to get to that next level, really needed to start building some capabilities in, in different areas. So, you know, didn't really have, you know, traditional departments the way some right. of us will think about it. So there wasn't really, you know, you, and it was great. I loved it because it was amazing how many things the company could do without technically having anyone who was in marketing the or there was yeah. no finance. There was yeah. no, there was, you know, and they kind of pieced it together. And I think Alan and Joey realized and what they wanted was they, they rolled in some of their money into the company. They mm-hmm. were part of the ownership group is they wanted to just bring in partners that could help professionalize it. Mm-hmm. And it was important to me, Alan and Joey, both part of my management team for the first um, two years. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure we didn't lose any of that DNA. What that, year was this, by the way? This was around 2014. Okay. Almost. Yeah, 2014 yeah. is when we acquired the company. And so Alan and Joey, was first two years, it really ensured that we kept this culture, that wonderful culture that they had created right. um, in both this entrepreneurial culture, the ability to kind of move quickly and while we built up different areas of the company. And so, I mean, the things we really wanted to do were, and I think it's our strategy that we lay down the first year is we wanted to build a great brand. We wanted to lead the innovation in our category, expand the brand penetration and drive world-class operations. Mm-hmm. The strategy was really simple on those four planks. And frankly, those four planks aren't that different than many of the businesses I've led over time. And it really was kind of getting into, as we looked at building the brand, we didn't want to, we didn't want to ruin or lose that authentic relationship that was created with this incredibly passionate community of enthusiasts. So we did, we avoided any big company instinct we had of, we'll just pour a lot of money in here and right. start mm-hmm. advertising and yeah. doing things. Instead, we did things that really nurtured that engagement uh, through other vehicles and be able to scale that way. We, on leading innovation, we were always great fast followers. So often what Elf would do was look at what was happening in Prestige, where a lot of the innovation would be led in this category and then make it much more accessible. Mm-hmm. Was everything we, still a dollar? It wasn't. We had, By that time, we had bought the company. There, you know, I'd say that it was a dollar to three dollars, okay. starting to look at a few six dollar points. Mm-hmm. You know, we've since, gosh, in the four years, you know, our average unit retails. I think when we bought the company, were about a dollar ninety eight, um, so almost two bought two dollars, yeah. and they're now about three dollars and forty seven cents. Got it. And so, still an incredible it's value. Getting, it's getting expensive, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right? It's uh, but you know that a key part of our thing is we've been able to take up our average unit retail seventy five percent and improve our value ratings. So mm-hmm. we have the highest value ratings of any brand kind of in our category. And the way we've been able to do that is through this approach on innovation. So we dramatically kind of expanded our innovation capability. And many of us have a passion for new products and innovation. And so, you know, we, we have... How many SKUs were there when you... When yeah, you bought so the business it's, and it's about it's about the same. So we, if you look some at some curation our, as well, look, then. we absolutely like. So we have about if you go on elfcosmetics.com, you have about nine hundred SKUs. That's probably the same when we bought it to what we have right now. So there is this weeding and feeding that happens. Yep. Um, if you go into a typical Target or you know, as we started expanding distribution, we're now at Walmart. We we just rolled out into Ulta Beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, in a four foot set. In a retail setting, you probably have about 150 items. In a much larger set, you might have 250 items. So the great thing about this model is we take – last year we launched, I think it was 128 products. Um, and, you know, not only do we launch a lot of products, but from the initial idea to selling in our direct channels is usually about 22 weeks 
on average mm-hmm. across all 128 with about 13 weeks being the fastest. So it's dramatically faster than right. almost any other company in our space. And But the key is it goes on our direct channel first. That's where we learn, and then we can bring those insights to, to customers uh, in terms of what's going to work and what's not. And if you think of kind of what insights are merchants most interested in, um, they really want to know what's going to sell. Oh, for and, sure. Uh, what do people like? And, yeah. and so having this where, you know, we have over 28 million visitors a year wow. on elfcosmetics.com. It's the number one mass e-commerce site in color cosmetics. It's a tremendous mm-hmm. advantage for us of saying, hey, look, we're not guessing off of a four or 500 base size concept and use study. We we actually have real data right. of people, what real they're software. buying and what they're you know, and over 130,000 reviews on the site. So that really gives us the ability to, to you know, have and help drive kind of productivity and proactively go and, you know, sub out SKUs that are on, on retailers' shelves right. with things that we think would be better that our consumers are responding to. And that, you know, it's been one of the reasons why we've now been, gosh, in Target eight years. I think this is our eighth year, eighth or ninth year in Target. We've grown every single year we've been there. Um, mainly because of this ability of taking those insights right. and being able to to do that. So I'd say, you know, in that strategy, we knew we could dramatically expand innovation, which we've done. We went from about 40 items a year to 128. We've improved our speed on brand penetration. We knew the start would always be our direct channel with elfcosmetics.com. When we bought the company, we were opening our first store at that time. And it really is, unlike other people, we have never had grand aspirations that we want to be in hundreds of stores but we wanted to be an extension of our direct business. And, you know, our store managers, our 22 store managers, are integrated into our innovation process. So every couple of weeks, you know, we'll hear from what are they hearing in the stores? Mm-hmm. What's, you know, what are people, what are we missing? What else, you know, what are they loving? And Where was the first one? It was, in, it was in Broadway in uh, in in New York. A, a great, you know, it was, a, it was a great story. I probably am not giving them enough credit, but I remember the entrepreneurial roots, I mean, uh, oh, Joey and Alan have are incredible. I said, uh, can you tell me your retail strategy? Like, what's the retail strategy all about? You know, and I think Alan at first said, ah, oh, we got friends. They have stores. They said, you got to open up a store. And <laughs> Joey, Joey went to NYU. He's walking by. He's like, hey, that's a great location. It's for lease. So we opened up a store, right? And in my, back in my head at the time, I was saying like, oh, my God, we're not even in Walmart, the number one right. seller of right. mass cosmetics uh, in the world. Um Oh, I'm sure I'll, you know, in back of your head, you think like, I'm going to shut those things down as soon as we take over because it has to be a distraction. But instead, what we saw is they really did have a really strong point of view and strategy of how that how the stores could help drive consumer engagement, Mm -hmm. that they're profitable um, and for their profitable form of marketing. Right. Even though we didn't know anything about retail. Each of these stores, and I don't think we've disclosed kind of the unit economics of mm-hmm. the stores, but um, they do extremely well. But more importantly, just the passion of our associates and right. our consumers every time we open a store. Of just a lot of how insights. Much interest there is. And just the innovation that comes with probably as well. Absolutely. And, you know, and not surprisingly, we find the stores, the performance of the stores correlates even better with when you go into a Ulta Beauty or a right. Target or our Walmart. And so our ability to kind of really build out that direct channel and really make it the, well, it's only about 15% of the business. It still is the engine that drives everything else. And then we have, I think a fairly disciplined way, expanded distribution. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was always important to us that, you know, 
Target knew we were committed to their category. So as we went into Walmart, making sure we're partnering well with Target and, right. you know, and they've rewarded us over time with more space and our ability to collaborate with them. Same with Walmart as we're getting into mm-hmm. Ulta Beauty. And, you know, we, we, did, we avoided the normal tendency of let's get everywhere we can go right. all at once. Right. Uh, I think we kind of had to, you know, shrink to be able to make sure that we knew where we wanted to go. Mm-hmm. One thing that I always found interesting is I think in beauty and specifically, it's a bit of an insular community where, you know, people are, they stay in beauty oftentimes. And the thing that I think is, is interesting within this story is that Elf, it feels like was more a product of, to a certain extent, just a business idea, right? The, the origination, there's two guys who actually originally were thinking more fashion and they're like, Hey, there's something interesting here. And then even as you kind of think about, uh, yourself and your team uh, coming more from wellness, actually. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, what you typically see, which are a lot of beauty junkies. And how has that been? Has it been a, a, a positive? Has it been a negative? Has that, has that sort of affected the business? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing for me, and I feel this way in almost every business I've had, is a lot of people pay lip service to who are we serving and mm-hmm. how how do we know them, right? So early in my career, you do focus groups, you do in-homes, you'd, you'd kind of get into it. I found actually a much more efficient way of getting after it is bring, infuse the company with the people that you're actually serving. So we've had the great luxury because of our growth that, you know, out of our 444 employees, I think we've hired 98% of them in the last four years. Mm-hmm. So we've been able to handpick just about everyone we have in the company. And we're always looking for a diversity of experience sets. So we right. do want people who know beauty extremely well. Right. We do want people who have other kind of core um, academy kind of experiences. But the most important thing we want is we serve young, diverse beauty enthusiasts. So, mm-hmm. you know, we made a point. 85% of our workforce is women. Uh, over 75% are millennial. Over 60% are diverse. Mm-hmm. And in turn, they're the very young, diverse beauty enthusiasts that we seek to serve. And it makes a tremendous advantage in terms of how fast we're able to move. I think the business model, to your point, you're right. It basically took every paradigm kind of in beauty and tried to do the opposite. Right, right. right. So instead yeah. of celebrity endorsements, our consumers are our stars. Yeah. Instead of broad-scale advertising, it's just direct conversation with our consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the instead of waiting two to three years to launch something, you know, we know our consumer. She knows what she wants, and she wants it now. Mm-hmm. So this constant strive of let's get let's get it to her quicker. Um, and then you know, back to the, even the the paradigm of I've got to have a high gross margin to go deal back. It's like no, let's have a great everyday core value. Right. And even though we've extended our price points, you know, one of our best selling items is a ten piece brush set for thirty dollars. Right? And at one point, people didn't think you could have a thirty dollar item on. Elf, but it's an extraordinary value. So staying true to your roots of right. where, where you started right. and this high quality, extraordinary value. Even as we've expanded into skincare, we've we've started mm-hmm. getting into skincare in the last couple of years and it's the same same approach. You know, Va- deliver value. Others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I mean I think that's one of the other keys is really kind of understand what business are you in and what do you really stand for and and being true to that. At what point did did you think about going public? Yeah, we, you know, we like many private equity backed companies. I think our original thesis is, you know, we build the company up, and there's a lot of strategic yeah. interest in this mm-hmm. space, and it's really how a lot of the big strategics have grown is through acquisition versus kind of um, any other way. So that was probably our original thought. But as we got into the company, and 
it seemed like every area that we touched when we looked at like the consumer engagement that we have yet you know when we bought the company we only had i think it was like three percent unaided awareness so mm-hmm. um my head of marketing hated when i tell her like hey wouldn't it be great if this wasn't our own little secret this brand <laughs> <laughs> and uh same with the innovation of what we could do there and you know our footprint kind of from a penetration standpoint uh, even in the u.s let alone international international school i mean we weren't even when we bought the company we weren't even in canada and mm-hmm. mexico which yeah, i don't really consider international sometimes right. but um so as we got in we just saw so much potential that we thought it would be a travesty to sell the company before we we're able to kind of realize kind of where we could go and so the going public or the ipo you know served two purposes one is really put the focus on I almost hit the reset button that we're in this for the long term it's not a you know three four year thing right. and, and we're going to go and um and then to it allowed obviously it was a good liquidity event for for, for, our, for our yeah for our investors and be able to you know return some some liquidity mm-hmm. and and still have a platform by which we could build this for the long term what year did the company go public it went public in 2016 uh, back half of 2016 so about a year and a half in was there any notable change that had to occur from just a cultural dynamic as a company going from a private company to a public one? Yeah, I would say no. The culture hasn't changed. The, I think the culture that we have, we, you know, every uh, I take great pride in. I've never had a business we haven't grown many multiples of the category, and I always attribute to the team that we brought in, motivated, and more impo- most importantly had operating this high-performance team culture. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of candor, the speed, the ownership I talk about. All of that is, I think, you know, frankly, even though the Shamas didn't call it high-performance team culture, right. they were operating in many yeah. respects that way. I think it was more about the capabilities you need. So obviously we had to build up certain functions, cap- you know, uh, IT, finance, other areas that we had to just make sure we're ready for public. Most of us come with a lot of, I mean, most of my career has been, on, yeah, on, on that side of the side. Mm-hmm. So I'd say less about that. And then the other thing we did very consciously is we limited how many people were really involved in kind of the IPO. We wanted people focused on the our consumers and mm-hmm. the business. And, you know, and while, yes, we have the quarterly earnings um, calls and things like that, we, you know, we keep people focused on that original strategy and how we continue to make advancements against it. Do you think it's a challenge? You know, you know, it's something we think about all the time. You haven't seen too many single branded businesses stay public or even to your point, even go public. As you, as you mentioned, they typically sell to a a larger CPG company and that's the typical cycle. What do you think is, you know, in, in, in running one, do you think there's a brighter future for more single brands to go public? Or do you think it is truly a challenging a challenging thing to, to be a single, a smaller single brand public company. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't really find that, you know, there's a reason why single versus multi brand wouldn't usually in our industry. The reason why they haven't is a, a large player would snap you up before right. you had right. that exactly. opportunity to yep. scale to a level that you could take mm-hmm. the company public. You know, I'd say, you know, having said that, I mean, this could be a great public company just as elf for, I mean, for as long as I can see, but we have built up a series of capabilities and we've made massive investments in this business that we believe we could, you know, bring other brands into into this mm-hmm. into fold, this company yeah. and fold and, and we've talked about that publicly. So I would say it's less because we don't think we can get there with Elf. It's more of 
really leveraging the investments we've made and more importantly, our capabilities uh, to build even a better business. Right after the break, we'll be back with our guest, Elf Cosmetics Chairman and CEO, Tarang Amin. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. Have feedback for us? Leave us a review. And now, let's get back to our episode with Elf Cosmetics, Tarang Amin question that we we like to ask is throughout your career has there been a moment in time where you really felt like you had to bet the company something where you were just taking a big chance uh yeah there have been multiple of those <laughs> moments uh so i would say you know one of those bet the moment companies was really as we started as entrepreneurs when mm-hmm. we bought our first place I mean, we bet everything we had mm-hmm. to be able to go forward and we'd yeah. be the same as we got kind of our second property right. every time you did you, you felt like you're doubling down and this was Kept betting know, the family. everything <laughs> exactly. and, or bust, right. and, you know, and when it's your family, you, the stakes are pretty high. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, an investment thing. And so I'd say those, those become very important because they really focus you on what do you really believe and what, what really matters. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they're a great focusing events. So I've had a number of them throughout my career, but I, I always go back to the early days of starting our family motel business. Gotcha. You've had a magnificent career. Um, is there a particular high point that stands out? You know, one of the high points for me was um, when we took Elf public, and it wasn't the normal, you know, ringing of the bell. Yeah, so say, did you ring the yeah. Yeah. yeah, we did that. That was <laughs> fun. The high moment for me really was uh, the night before we took the company public. We had an event for um, many of our. Uh, beauty influencers, and these are these are women who love Elf, who've kind of you know touted the brand, and we often get them together to help build their community and you know get very high reach numbers. Uh, we didn't had an event the night before in New York where I was able to go there and tell them because obviously it's confidential till you 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 finish right. your pricing and and basically say we're taking the company public tomorrow and we're bringing we'd like to invite all of you onto the floor of the New York Stock Exchange oh, wow. and help celebrate because you've helped build this brand with wow. us. And so the real high point for me was that morning, I think we, we had about 130 mainly women come on the New York Stock Exchange floor. I think one of the, the news anchors said they'd never seen the floor look that good in terms of, <laughs> you know, like, or never seen that many women yeah. on, on the floor of yeah. the Stock Exchange. And um, being able to celebrate kind of that milestone with, you know, Alan and Joey Shama, the founders, the, our team, you know, and many of the core consumers who had right. helped built up the brand, that was uh, that was a, a real highlight. Is there a particular low point? I've had so many low points. I, somebody, somebody <laughs> what's the, once what's asked the me, bottom? Yeah. <laughs> I think the bottom is uh, when I was at P and G and I was running Bounty and yeah. you know get a Business Week article that says your business is the reason is a great example <laughs> of why the company's not doing well. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was a pretty That's good pretty low public. point. But you know, I've had plenty of others, and I think those are always some of the best moments to kind of learn and, and kind of pick yourself up and say, what is it you really want to do? And at this point, what's keeping you up at night? You know, I think the key thing for me is as we continue to scale and get big, and it's so easy, particularly as a public company, to get uh, distracted with, you know, where's your stock, where's right. other things going, is is m- making sure we do two things, which is never lose the the culture and the speed at which 
you know, you could move when you're a smaller, more entrepreneurial company versus mm-hmm. a public company. And so that's one of the things that constantly, you know, I have, I have no concept of time and we move very fast. And one of the things that freaks me out the most is if I ever get any sense that we're moving any slower than, mm-hmm. than we have in the past, I'd say that's probably the biggest thing because that's, that's the thing that will get in the way of us really being able to achieve what we want to go do. Wayne, what I found most interesting about the conversation with Terang was they really tried to create a new business model. It honestly was a precursor to direct-to-consumer, right? Absolutely. A lot of the guys in direct-to-consumer today, it's all about taking out the retailer, and so you don't have to pay retail margin, so you can deliver value to the consumer. And what Elf was doing was, well, within a retail environment, what we're going to do is we're not going to market. We're not going to do trade promos. We're going to deliver everyday low prices and give you great product for a buck 50 or something like that and you know it's it's a it's a it's a changing of of mentality there but terang's all about team and i think he's been very thoughtful about how he's built who's part of elf i mean 85 percent of the team is are are women Mm -hmm. with extremely diverse backgrounds and wildly different skill sets and i think they're well positioned to continue to be successful as a result for sure and even with all of that success, it's been clear that Terang has always been about family. And that started with the motel business. So it's no surprise that family still is number one priority. We have a uh, eight-year-old Labradoodle, uh, Ollie, who's like really our third child. And we, <laughs> my wife and I love kind of you know, taking him to the beach, hiking, going outside, enjoying kind of the area. We're big foodies. We love to travel. Um, you know, I was, I've got a 26 year old son and a 23 year old daughter. I told my daughter Priyanka the other day that the master plan was working. She said, what's that dad? <laughs> I said, well, you're both grown, you're out of the house, but you're still in our lives, still in the Bay area. So it's working. Of course, she threatened to go to New York right after that, but I should not have revealed right. exactly. the master plan. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so why it's love, a master plan. You don't tell anybody. So we love kind of, you know, having them kind of in our lives and, and time with our friends so we we just we love this area all right terang time for our signature game rapid fire 60 seconds you ready ready all right cat person or dog person dog favorite consumer brand pantene go to alcoholic beverage gray goose and fresca what's your favorite sports team the duke blue devils ah west coast east coast west coast what's your fate what's your biggest pet peeve that's uh, lack of speed. <laughs> uh, favorite superhero? Uh, Superman. Most influential person in your life? My father. One place you want to travel right now? The Maldives. Biggest fear? Failure. Mm. Favorite book? 100 Years of Solitude. Your most embarrassing moment? Oh, way too many. <laughs> <laughs> what are you most proud of? My family. If you had access to a time machine, where's the one event or period you'd travel to? A time of Lincoln. Even okay. though it was a tough time in the country. Love How do you like your steak cooked? Medium rare. Do you have any tattoos? No. <laughs> What's your Wi-Fi password? Fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite pizza topping? Uh, pepperoni. Most hated pizza topping? Uh, pineapple. Do you have a life motto? Uh, hardly ever right, but never in doubt. Well, last question. What what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, I'd say this. Uh, one of the things I love about the, I mean, so many great founders and entrepreneurs I've met 
is their ability to constantly pick themselves up. And usually it comes at like what they consider the worst possible time or some terrible kind of event. But I call it that reset ability is probably one. And the second one is, you know, I always used to think it had to be, I remember when, that it had to be like the perfect idea to be able to kind of get going. And what I found is, no, just get going. Just keep going and mm-hmm. keep trying. And I, I've never seen a business that started with the original idea in terms of where it ended up in terms right. of the success. And mm-hmm. it's it's that ability to kind of pivot and keep finding and discovering and, and, and change. Um, that's more important than I would call it the delay and kind of thinking you have everything right to begin with because right. silver bullets that way yeah. Works, yeah well that's great advice terang thank you so much for joining us today it was my pleasure thanks so much unfinished biz is a vmg partners production you can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice send us questions comments and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.